doing? This is the Onyx Report with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. We are back in here. It's been a little while. I think uh, during my last, uh, the last time uh, slot I was supposed to broadcast, I had a little um, health mishap. So um, glad to be back in here. Hope everybody is well. Um, if you haven't caught it, I did a three-part series uh, last week on intimate partner violence against black men. You can check that on YouTube and just look up Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. If you haven't subscribed subscribed yet, I hope you do. For those listening on YouTube right now, uh, please make sure you like, share, and subscribe uh, today's show. I hope everybody's well. I can see people uh, coming in the building. Professor Conroe or Ian, Damon, uh, Muada. You know, it's good to see everybody in here. Uh, hoping everybody is well. Uh, we're going to try and go in uh, and get a quick one in because uh, it is actually uh, the first day of teaching for us at Fresno State as faculty. So I'll be in the midst of that and and uh, burning the midnight oil tonight, making sure I'm ready. We are, we are broadcasting from home, as you all know, but uh, it is what it is. Um, so what I'd like to do is actually start as you know, we do on the Onyx Report with some uh, some kind of current events just to get us on the same page about where things actually are right now, uh, because it is indeed a strange time. Um, so first up, you know, report coming out, looking at the CDC, arguing, making the statement that one quarter of young adults contemplated suicide during this pandemic. Um, and I think for many people, it wasn't necessary for a CDC report to uh, to acknowledge that, but it's still nonetheless important because it is what we're dealing with. Uh, and it is the truth of the matter in terms of what's happening. I myself commented on this last week. I uh, actually have had calls from people late at night. You know, I've gotten calls early in the morning. At the last call I got was somewhere at 530 in the morning on Facebook. Uh, from a brother I didn't even know who was contemplating suicide. So I gave him the uh, national suicide number, but it is important that we recognize the climate and the time period we're in. And in many instances for black males, there's not uh, a lot of support. Uh, many of the brothers that I run across are isolated by themselves without very much support. Uh, so please make sure that, um, you know, if you have brothers in your vicinity that you know don't have a lot of support, uh, that you extend that to the best of your abilities. Um, let's see, Julius, what's going on? Caveman, Brandon, it's good to see people in the chat. And you can join on the, in the in the comment section on YouTube. Uh, if you come through there, you'll be able to do that. You can also support the show on Cash App at uh, dollar sign Dr. T Hassan J on PayPal or Patreon, uh, as well as Venmo. And I also have a film review series that I'm doing. Uh, particularly for fathers and sons, to use film as a way to talk to your sons about life. And one of the last films I reviewed is Jamie Foxx's Project Power on Netflix. Uh, so check that out if you haven't had a chance to yet, uh, and hopefully you'll get a chance to enjoy that. Nevertheless, uh, going back to the article, uh, it's saying one in four young adults between the ages of 18 and 24 say they've contemplated suicide in the past month because of the pandemic. Um, and this is uh, something we need to take seriously. Uh, the CDC studied um, or analyzed uh, 5,400 survey respondents between June 24th and June 30th. So just within a matter of a few days, we're seeing massive um, reports of suicidal contemplation. 
Uh, let's see, uh, Art New Style BGS, good to have you guys in here. Um, let's see, so next report up, study finds black newborns have higher mortality rates under care of white doctors than black physicians, right? New study has found that black newborns have a significantly higher chance of dying under the care of white doctors when compared against those treated by black doctors. The study, which was published on Monday in the Journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, analyzed data from 1.8 million births in Florida between 1992 and 2015. The death rate for black newborns was reduced by uh, between 39 and 58% when a black doctor was in charge of their care uh, as compared against those who were cared for by white, white doctors. The study authors found black doctors caring for newborns saw a mortality rate, rate of 463 deaths per 100,000 compared to 720 deaths per 100,000 for white doctors. Um, so at hospitals where more black babies are delivered, these disparities are even more pronounced. So something to take into account. And again, I, pro I try and provide this information, especially for my masculinists, uh, so that you have data to bring to bear on the points you're making. Uh, this is, so I would suggest that you combine this with some of the stuff I talked about before in terms of the top 10 causes of death. And when you look at uh, black males who are still in utero, they tend to die at much, much higher rates than uh, even black females. So when you kind of add those two together, you can you can kind of sketch together a, 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 a kind of view of uh, what black children and especially black boys tend to deal with more often than not. Uh, Vaughn Postal, appreciate that support. Um, let's see. Let's get into the next one here. Georgia cops open fire on kids running home to get father after a traffic stop. Uh, this one you can find on newsmaven.io, um, the website. And it's basically uh, about the story about a 16-year-old teen who was driving, um, told his younger siblings to get their dad after cops pulled him over. Georgia cops opened fire on several children who were running home to get their father after the cops pulled them over Saturday, according to family members. Fortunately, none of the children ages 9, 12, 14, 15, and 16 were shot, but police did pistol whip the 15-year-old, leaving him with a bloody gash near his eye. Waycross police confirmed they fired their guns, but have not specified why they fired their guns, which is an indicator they did not have a valid reason. They have also not said why the car was pulled over in the first place. Right? So these are kind of things that uh, we're dealing with. And the image, for those of you on YouTube, you can see the young, the young man actually has, a blood, has blood streaming down the side of his face. Um, this is definitely the treatment of black boys. Uh, next up, we got billionaire Robert Smith makes the argument that private corporations should pay reparations if the transatlantic slave trade helped build their wealth. Pretty common sense approach, but sometimes uh, billionaires can be heard uh, on matters that everyday people aren't. Uh, so he puts forth the idea. He says, I think that's going to be a political decision that's going to have to be made and decided upon. Uh, but I think corporations have to also think about, well, what is the right thing to do? So the billionaire believes the private sector should invest billions into reparations for the black community. Um, and the Vista Equity CEO made the suggestion during a video interview with Reuters um, on Wednesday, August 12th. So again, something to check into. Uh, quick report. And this one I had to send to my boy, Dr. Tommy Curry out in the UK. Uh, they're finding reports that black and Asian minority ethnic uh, children, the children from uh, black and Asian minority backgrounds, are stunned three times more often by police. 
So as we know, the UK, uh, they don't uh, necessarily deal with firepower on a daily basis like that. Like the police here, they tend to use non-lethal measures. But even though they are using non-lethal measures, what we find is that uh, the children tend to be stunned three times as often, right? In 2020 data, mostly up to the end of May, such children have had taser weapons used against them three more times, um, excuse me, used against them more times than white children, uh, 295 occasions against 271. The true figure accounting for all police forces is certain to be significantly higher, right? So just kind of sifting through some of the some of the reports that I think may have be of use. Um, I'm only reading a portion of them. Obviously, for those who are on YouTube, you can uh, come back to the video. You can find the article directly, or you can come back to the video and pause the screen to look at the details. But next up, they finally found two men who were charged with the killing of rap uh, hip hop pioneer Jam Master Jay. Right? Apparently, the report suggests that uh, two men. Uh, Ronald Washington and Carl Jordan Jr. were charged with murder while engaged in drug trafficking uh, in a 10-count indictment unsealed on Monday in U.S. District Court in Brooklyn. Apparently, that they, they were armed and broke into uh, Jay's studio in Jamaica, Queens at 7.30 p.m. on August, October 30th, 2002. As Mr. Washington forced someone inside the studio to the ground at gunpoint, the papers say Mr. Jordan fired a bullet into Jam Master Jay's head. Um killing him almost instantly. Um, so this ha apparently had to do with a multi-kilogram, multi-state narcotics transaction that they accused Jam Master Jay of leaving them out of, uh, as he had already apparently, according to them, received 10 kilos of cocaine on consignment. So they're basically saying that it was a, a, a drug paraphernalia issue gone bad that uh, cost the life of Jam Master Jay, right? This one um, really hit me. I posted this a few days ago on my social media, and I think it's important to look at. Uh, the title of it is that cops seek a vengeful ex-girlfriend in shooting death of Brooklyn dad. Uh, apparently, this, this young man, Jamel Copeland, uh, was in a relationship with a woman who was abusive until that abuse breached abuse and ended up becoming the grounds for his death, right? Uh, according to the article, uh, you know, it was suggested that she had been engaged in domestic violence incidents uh, between 2018-2019. Uh, 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 Copeland's family said the girlfriend took over his Facebook account at one point and unleashed a torrent of offens offensive updates. She accused him of infidelity, called him a deadbeat dad, and insult insulted his friends and family with homophobic remarks. She went over to his grandmother's house, broke the windows, broke the car door, um, and apparently threatened the family along those lines. The ex-girlfriend used the same tactic on Saturday morning to lure him to the street to his death. She was breaking the windows on his grandmother's house. He was in the house sleeping peacefully, and then he was apparently assassinated. Uh, says close-knit families were tired of dealing with his ex and wanted to step in. But Jamel Copeland waved them off, saying, don't do anything to her, don't touch her, God will take care of her until he died. Now, this is reminiscent of an interview I did with Dr. Dennis Sperling, I mean, excuse me, attorney Dennis Sperling last week, where he, we talked about not only intimate partner violence, but what some of the practical solutions for Black men who are dealing with it, uh, what kind of solutions they can engage. So if you haven't uh, checked that, that interview, please do. 
for black men who are dealing with this because the direct response often ends up leaving black men incarcerated more often, uh, even in self-defense. Nevertheless, um, this is what's taken place and uh, peace to Jamel Copeland and his family. Uh, but he has, uh, you know, died at the result of intimate partner homicide, something we don't talk enough about. Um, so definitely something to look at. So getting into today, one of the things that um, I was thinking about last week, I actually went, it was up late. I tend to be uh, dealing with a little bout of insomnia, if you will. And I actually ran across a movie that I watched and regretted watching for that matter. It was Deep Blue Sea 3. And this is the kind of logic that after three in the morning kind of hits me where I watch all kinds of stuff. So I'm watching this film and it's basically um, a continuation, a direct continuation of the second one. Uh, G-Rock, appreciate that support. Um, those of you, uh, you know, please watching, uh, please support the show. Malik, appreciate the cash app support uh, as well as uh, Mark. Thank you for the PayPal. Um, so this is a film that continues from the last. For those of you who are film buffs, you may remember the first Deep Blue Sea movie. Uh, you had Samuel Jackson and LL Cool J. One was a billionaire who got eaten by a shark, and the other was the resident chef on a floating uh, diving scientific facility. In the second movie, you had, um, oh man, his name escapes me. Uh, I want to say it's Michael, but uh, I can see his face right in my head. He he, uh, he actually plays the mad scientist in question this time around. Um, oh, man. Yeah, Michael Beach. Uh, some of you may remember Michael Beach from a number of different films. The one that immediately pops to mind is um, the one with uh, Samuel Jackson also playing uh, uh, the principal, Joe Clark. Lean on me. Michael Beach was the young teacher that threw the desk on his head. Anyway. Michael Beach in this second one uh, plays the mad scientists who are experimenting with sharks as well until he also gets killed. And so this third one, uh, the racial politics are even worse because they're blended with some strange gender politics. Uh, now, I'm going to tell you why I'm telling you about this movie in a minute. But in this film, the principal heroine of the film is a young white woman who is more intelligent than everybody around her. Uh, who has a, a shark, a great white shark, who she pets and befriends uh, and seeks out on a regular basis. It doesn't eat her. They just get along great. Um, she literally is punching and kicking at sharks. She's beating up guys, throwing them over walls. It's just, you have to watch it to see it. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I'm not telling you to watch it. If it's something you want to see, just to make sure I'm not lying, then by all means. But it's a horrible movie. One of the things I saw about it that I thought was interesting is that throughout all of this, you know, this again, you know, the story arc is dealing with hyper intelligent sharks that are trying to eat people and take over the ocean and how can we stop them. But in this story, all of the men, um, I'm just going to say it, spoiler alert, they all die. They are on a floating island, a man-made island right outside of, man, what is it, Madagascar off the continent of Africa? And uh, all the men die. Now, what's interesting is at the end of this, you have the white woman herself. You have an African woman who lives on the island, who was apparently uneducated, um, lives there by her, 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 her with her and her brother, 
They're the last two that decide to live on this island. Her brother dies. Um, and then you have this Asian woman who's actually, you know, fairly educated herself, but is pretty meek um, in comparison to the white woman. The white woman is the alpha. The other two kind of do what she says, so on and so forth. But what I noticed at the end of this film was the same thing I noticed at the end of um, the Madam C.J. Clark film. Uh, was that what it was? Uh, um, I reviewed it a couple months ago. It came out on Netflix. Madam C.J. Walker, I'm sorry. And in it, the ending was this kind of feminist Shangri-La, right? Where all the men are gone. All of them are either defeated or dead. And these women survive together holding hands and, and, and off to, you know, live in this new world without men uh, and, and that is inherently fair and just simply because they're women. Um, the film ends with that narrative, as have others. And I'm seeing this to happen more and more. You know, I, I reviewed Girls Trip recently on Facebook, and I noticed the same kind of dynamic. Regardless of race, regardless of class, regardless of occupation, regardless of geography, language, or culture, the end of the film was a feminist Shangri-La where they had to get rid of all of the men uh, because the men were bad, except for one or two, or one in particular in that film, um, who is very much letting it be known he's willing to let her call the shot. So, you know, this idea of what an acceptable male is, is one who defers to female leadership. Right. And and short of him and, it, and Deep Blue C3, it wasn't even him. He, that guy. And there was there were a couple of those men who deferred to female leadership. In this instance, they still died. But uh, in other films, they're allowed to survive and they kind of operate like um, pets. You know, they're almost uh, goodness. Yeah, they're almost uh, pretty much like mascots. Right. Um, in these films, the women come together across all dimensions and form this Shangri-La that uh, they can walk off into the sunset with and their greatest troubles, men, are all gone. And this kind of thinking has been socialized into us for generations to the degree where males themselves will internalize it and the degree where girls will inherit it from their mothers and their grandmothers. Black Pill, appreciate that support. Um, he says, I should have watched Sharknado. Flying sharks are better than overpowered females. <laughs> um, but, you know, in watching this kind of Shangri-La idea, I realized that it's not just in fiction that we see it. It is something that I think has elevated to uh, an agenda in the real world. And why do I say that? Well, again, across logic, across even ideology in some instances, one of the things that we're seeing is a push to have a woman of color in office in the executive branch of government. And this was something that was put forth in particular um, to um, Biden, right? It was a demand that he pick a woman that he, you know, pick, and particularly a black woman at that to serve as his VP. Um, Nasa, Nasa Hayana, uh, Hayana, I appreciate the support. Brandon, thank you for the Venmo. Um, and so in this instance, we're, we're, we're looking at this kind of push to have female representation in the highest office and, and, and almost a disregard for what the platform is, what the agenda is, what her politics and policies are. Uh, and recently we had one, um, Dr. Angela Davis comment on this herself, and I'm going to play that comment, um, 
let's see. I want to make sure that uh, this can be heard. So bear with me. I'm going to have to switch the mic for my inner light uh, people to be able to hear it. So let me broadcast it here. I'm working across, I'm using some old school techniques, people, so bear with me a little bit as I get this going. Let me share the screen for my YouTube folks and make sure I share the audio so you guys can hear this. This was something, again, that I posted on um, my Facebook page, so let me see if it will let me play it now. I, I'm excited. I was sitting here today looking at um, the New York Times, the review yeah. uh, the cover of the New York Times. Uh, yeah. Now, this isn't to say that uh, Kala doesn't have um, problematic areas of her record. Uh, and we can't forget that she did not um, oppose the death penalty. And we can't forget some of the real problems uh, that are associated with her career as a prosecutor. Uh, but I think it's a feminist approach to be able to work with those contradictions, uh, to be able to dwell there. Um, and so in that context, I can say that, 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 that I'm uh, very excited. I think it makes the ticket a lot more palatable, that's for sure. <laughs> Uh, you know, I can tell you that uh, even before um, I knew that we would have to campaign for Biden and he's not the best candidate, uh, he's very problematic in so many ways, uh, but we have to get rid of the person who's in office uh, 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 at this moment, whose name I will not pronounce. Uh, okay. So one of the things that uh, I get from that is that uh, it's imperative by all means to get Trump out of office regardless of the cost. But when I look at the two people, when I look at the two people who have been instrumental in uh, incarcerating black men to unprecedented degrees, one more specific to the Bay Area and the other having a national impact, uh, it's hard for me to take the stance that this is a harmless endeavor that has no repercussions. For black men, um, looking at Biden and looking at Harris is not particularly exciting based on their track record. But this kind of statement, this kind of idea that you know feminism will allow for the tensions and can situate itself in the midst of all of that is easy to say when you're not the one paying the cost. And that's my concern with this kind of notion that, uh, you know, the Biden-Harris kind of narrative, and we've heard this every, I mean, for the last 20 years, we, you know, I've heard the same argument. We got to get Bush out of office or else. And, and don't, you know, we'll, we'll put off real politics till later. We got to get, you know, we got to keep, um, you know, all these various, you know, conservatives out of office because things will get worse. Well, when you hear it every four years, you get to a point where it's like, well, when will we get to some real politics, particularly politics that actually benefit black men? And there's no discussion of that because the black agenda is not developed and constructed by black men either. Right. So part of the issue there is that um, black men just have to endure whatever happens in the name of getting Trump out of office. 
And so I think it's time we have a we have a more detailed conversation about that because I think it's it's due that we go further. Now tonight we're only going to be on for about an hour. So if you want to call in, you can call in at 310-928-7733. Um, I think I'm I'm back online. I think we went off for a second on inner light, but we should be good. Now, here's my here's my primary concern. Right now, the question of putting a black woman in office, she's black, she's not ADOS, but she's black, but putting her in office is a primary concern to a variety of groups, most, most particularly liberal groups and many black women. But my question is one, if we don't have a black agenda, and particularly a black male agenda, what good is it? And two, and I'm just posing this as a question. I'm not sure if white women will support it. Why? Well, um, I said this on uh, the cows interview with Gus the Renegade last night. For those who didn't catch it, you should be able to look it up on SoundCloud. I posted it on some of my social media on Twitter and Facebook. It was a real fun interview. Um, but one of the things I said, I, I think I actually said it when I interviewed Dr. Curry last week as well. I said, you know, we got to look out for what's called the Bradley effect, right? And the Bradley effect has to do with what white folks will do behind closed doors. I mean, I should say behind the voting booth, right? Uh, there's a difference between what's stated publicly and what people actually vote. And we know in the last election that one of the main reasons Trump got into office was particularly because of uh, white women's vote, right? Same white women we thought were going to overwhelmingly show out for Hillary Clinton ended up showing out more so for Trump in a way we didn't anticipate. Well, here's my question about this one. If we take into account the Bradley effect and we look at uh, Kamala Harris, right? Are white women going to vote for a black woman to be in a position that they have not yet enjoyed? Now, I don't have a bone to pick one way or the other as far as that. I'm not opting that white women should be able to do it first. I could care less. As far as I'm concerned, I have as much connection to Harris as I did Obama, which is very little. None of them had an agenda that appealed to black men. Um, as far as I was concerned, Obama spoke very condescendingly to black men, uh, very dismissively. Um, and even when he set up the um, Brothers Keeper program, it wasn't tied to any federal funds. And if anything, it was it was quickly shot down, uh, at least in the court of public opinion, by black feminists for the most part. And we didn't hear much uh, much about it after that. So to me, meaningless symbolic gestures, I, I really could care less about. So, again, I, I have no particular dog in the fight with Obama or Kamala, because to me, neither one of them really represents uh, the black men that I try and do my work for my research on and my advocation for. Uh, however, as I look at this, um, I'm, I'm just finding it an interesting question to ask. You know, do we think uh, white women will do what they did with Trump? Now, of course, the uh, elephant in the room is COVID and the economy the, that has come with that. So the question becomes, you know, will that change the tide? We'll see. But um, at the end of the day, you know, Hillary was the biggest push for white women to get into the executive branch. It didn't work. We've still not had a, a woman president. The question will come down to, I think, white women's you know, ties to race versus their ties to gender. And it's going to be an interesting to see, interesting thing to see, to see which way that goes. Right. So um, I think. I a woman hello. Hello. The question will come down to. Hold on. Hello. Oh, one second. Got a caller before I knew I had a caller. So bear with me. Um, Caller, give us your name and your your city, 
And if, if those of you in the chat on YouTube, if you can tell me if you can hear this, I would appreciate it. Put a one in the chat if you can hear the caller clearly. Caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? I'm Seven Smalls, man, coming from Raleigh, calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. Calling from Raleigh. How you doing, Seven? What's up, brother? What's going on? Not much, man. Give us your thoughts. Well, listen, everything you're saying is extremely poignant. That's been my rally cry. Um, I've been all on Facebook um, talking about the same thing, and I've said it several times over and over and over again. I said, what policies um, have Trump? You can, you can hate him or whatever. But what Trump, what policies have Trump passed his current administration that has more or less reduced the efficacy of black men, black family, and the community? And nobody can give me an answer. They always say he's a racist. I say, well, Biden's a racist. So pick a racist. But when I say talk about the policies that have been detrimental to the efficacy of black men, black women, and black children, no one can give you a, a, a salient response because there is no response. Well, um, what do you think about this question of, um, you know, uh, women voting in regard to um, you know, Kamala and which way that'll go. Well, listen, women will always vote with their self-interest because they're very insular. Women by nature are very insular. So they're going to always vote their self-interest. And I think more women will vote for Kamala versus voting for the community because they've done it sadly historically. You know, they're the old saying that a lot of black women have always wanted to be like Miss Ann. And there's an intrinsic nature that's tied back to theology, in my opinion, where women want to vie for power. They want the power of the man. Um, they want taxation without representation in my best estimate. So I think a lot of women, especially black women, are going to vote for Kamala Harris, even to the detriment of the black community and the black man. Mm, uh-oh. All right. Well, thank you, brother. Appreciate you calling in. Uh, for those who don't know, right, brother. the phone number is 310-928-7733. Tonight is going to be a shorter show, so we're going to be going at a little bit faster a pace. Um, and uh, we'll only be able to get in a few short comments. Thank you for those in the chat on Facebook and YouTube for letting me know you could hear it. Um, as you all, you all know, the last time I had BG up, BGS up in here and we were discussing the archetypes, we had some trouble with uh, the sound coming back and forth. So it looks like we're kind of doing a little bit better this time and we're going. So, you know, as we deal with this issue, you know, not only is, is the Bradley effect a concern, uh, not only is whether or not we settle for um, candidates that may on one side get rid of a, of, of a president we don't like, but offer nothing, specifically as black men. One of the things we I think we also have to talk about is what issues that black men face and how they need to be addressed. Uh, now, I've been told, and I've seen this in the last number of years, that this question of black men uh, not being on board, not supporting the, the right uh, uh, political agenda, you know, where, in fact, you have black men supporting Democratic candidates at second highest levels, just under black women, but higher than any other group. And yet somehow black men get denigrated as not doing so. Uh, and we're still not talking about voter disenfranchisement, um, where uh, black men are, uh, because of incarceration, not able to vote in many states or having some kind of complication as far as that's concerned, and yet still managing to vote to the second highest degrees. But the question is, do we tend to vote in our interest or do we not? We got another caller in calling from 770 area code. Caller, give us your name and where you're calling from. Hey, peace, brother. This is Ian Graves. Hey, what's up, um, Ian? Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Hey, are you feeling all right these days? I'm feeling a little better, man. Feeling a little better. 
uh, except for this triple-digit Fresno weather. But uh, what's the word, man? What you got on your mind? Oh, okay, yeah. I've just, you know, when when they announced Kamala, you know, I just about gave up really because I'm like, this is this is the last straw. You had uh, Oprah also; she was doing a little campaign um, talking about women voting and women in leadership. You know, but the question is, who and what are they leading? You know, because of the fact that uh, the black community, the black the black agenda, is not being pushed. You know, uh, as part of their platform usually when they have the microphone. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm questioning, you know, whether or not that will be um, important to them at all as far as the black family, you know, and, and one thing I never see, you know, when it comes to black women in leadership or political leadership rather, is that I don't ever see them advocating for children. You know, we talk about black men and boys, but, uh, you know, them, them as mothers, you know, they're, 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 they're supposed to be the gatekeepers um, because, you know, they're calling black men out for their frailties as fathers. So I assume as these great mothers, you know, they should be the number one advocate for kids. But I never hear that, you know, so that's that's very problematic. And that's that's my number one issue. You know, if you're a woman and you you uh, put yourself out there as a woman, as a mother, you should be advocating for the children, but that's that's never heard of. That's never seen. All right. Well, I appreciate your comments, man. Thank you, brother. Um, absolutely, absolutely. It's a valid question uh, because, again, and I talk about this all the time, particularly in California, you have, uh, what, 70 percent of, of boys at the K through 12 level dealing with illiteracy. And as I've said before, um, you know, for the Cal State system, which is the largest university system in the country, 70% of black males who managed to make it in drop out in their first year. How much support, what types of organizations have we seen, but particularly from those in a position to do something about it? One of the things that we're noticing, and I put this in a paper that I wrote some years ago called Some Black Men Are Jerks, But uh, Black Male Privilege Is Not a Thing, uh, one of the things I pointed out is that for the last few decades, we've been seeing uh, a, a, an overwhelming tidal wave of new electoral uh, represent representatives, uh, you know, who are running for office, who are more often than not women. And the numbers of black men who are actually running for these positions are dwindling. And I associate this with education, because one of the things we're finding is that from 1976 to 2018, black men literally have almost 50% of the degrees black women have. So when Ian mentioned that we're talking about the gatekeepers, he's being he's being direct. He's being, he's being direct and he's being literal because in many instances, higher level white collar jobs are going to go to those with college degrees. And if black men have half the degrees that black women do, who happen to be the group who are you know, the primarily uh, most enrolled demographic in the country, then when you talk about political representation, it's going to have fallout in terms of who's getting the most degrees. So the question of who's going to advocate for kids, who's going to advocate for boys, is not just about how many people will advocate, but what kinds of people advocate, what positions are they in, what leverage do they bring to bear? And unfortunately, that's more often than not, not black men. Right. So those are things that we have to deal with, uh, especially in a context where I argue that the state has in many ways um, weaponized the black family as an arm of white supremacy and our natures. Now, what do I mean about the black family? I've talked about this before. One of the things I, I've mentioned is that 
by, by pitting black men and women against each other, leaving the social expectation of black men to provide and protect, while at the same time empowering black women and, and underdeveloping black men. So at the same time, you had black women going to college in greater numbers in the 70s and 80s. That was the war on drugs. That was the same time increasing numbers of black men were going to prison. Right. As women were doing better in school, black men were doing worse in school, so on and so forth. Those kind of sliding dimensions have really shaped black male and female life. And I use male and female because we're not just talking about adults. We're also talking about the youth. Right. And so as those things begin to take shape over several decades, we see a developing idea amongst both black men and women that black men are ineffective. Black men don't care. Black men are boogeymen. Black men are criminals. And this this idea takes hold. And what we see in popular culture, again, referencing films like Girls Trip and the culmination of this push uh, for everything from Black Lives Matter to Kamala Harris is this idea that I think Dr. Tommy Curry refers to as a subculture of violence. Right. This idea that black men are inherently problematic and need to be left out of the dimension of decision making as far as the community is concerned. And so as long as that's the case, we have an inbuilt justification to dismiss black men's concerns and push for whatever's in the best interest of the black community, which is synonymous with what's in the best interest of black women and girls. And so boys and men get left out of the discussion and it becomes more and more problematic. So uh, as I think about these things, one of the things I want to talk about, or at least start a conversation on, or I shouldn't say start, continue a conversation on, is what a black male agenda looks like. Now, a moment ago, I said that the family has been made an arm of, of, of white supremacy. And by that, I talked about pitting black men and women against each other while, while, while institutionally empowering women and institutionally underdeveloping black men. The other way is, uh, I mentioned, is that you know our natures are, are, have been uh, weaponized against us as well. And that goes back to a blog piece I wrote, I want to say a year or two ago, uh, entitled Why is Generation X um, Fatherless? And basically in that, I talked about the role that everything from um, uh, birth control uh, to our sexual impulses, our particular gender role constructs, how these things were used against black men in a very distinct way. Put very simply, uh, since we don't have a lot of time, um, Women have five major types of birth control in 30 different forms, and that doesn't include abortion. Men have the same options they had in the 1950s. Condoms, abstinence, the pull-out method, right? So inevitably, when you talk about our natures, you know, women's nature is to produce, reproduce, and produce family. Men's nature is to spread seed. The way I describe our, our natures being weaponized against us is by giving women a lot of these options for birth control that can be used before, during, and after the sex act, sex act, but men not having any kind of control whatsoever other than abstinence. And that's even thrown in men's faces when they get into sexual situations or end up reproducing with somebody they don't want to. But if you look at it more on an institutional level, it's pitting our natures against us by empowering one side and leaving the other side with virtually no options. And when you do that kind of thing, it means that men end up in a position with less decision-making capability, but they're still punished, right? They're still punished for having had sex at all if the outcome is poor, 
but we don't look at the fact that men have very few options when it comes to being able to control that. So that said, that's what I mean by weaponizing our nature, sexually speaking and otherwise, against us. So whether it's the family, the gender role idea, where men are supposed to provide and protect, but you remove the options for them, most particularly after the post the, uh, the deindustrialization of the late 1970s. So you take their jobs away, you give them drugs, you put them in jail for using and selling those drugs, and yet you still have the social expectation that they provide and protect, while also limiting their sexual, their birth control options so that, and, and empowering women's. All of these are set up in a way that weaponizes both the family, reproduction, and our natures against Black men in particular, in a way that no other community is grappling with. So that said, in the face of that, we've still not talked about developing a Black male agenda. And I think um, it's important that we do so because this is a necessary conversation. So I'm just going to posit a few things that we consider as options for um, a Black agenda. Things to consider, things to start out with um, and go from there, right? So for those on YouTube, you can see some of the the, the beginning bullet points and uh, those I, on Interlight, I will read it to you uh, in a moment. Now, I am not arguing that these are exhaustive by any measure. I am merely saying that this is what I would call a starting point. Chief Rocker, appreciate that support. Um, let me see. Uh, Nick, appreciate the support. Um, I don't mean to overlook anything, but because we're kind of moving a little faster tonight, I just want to make sure I get my major points uh, on the table. Uh, so anyway, the first bullet point is mandatory te DNA testing at birth. And this is really an attempt to hamper paternity fraud. Um, the, the, you know, actually criminalizing paternity fraud is not really uh, anywhere near where it needs to be. The cost on men is incredibly detrimental, uh, and yet there's very little dialogue about this. And, and those of you, many of you know, I posted a video that went viral uh, on my channel here on YouTube and on Facebook, for that matter, a couple of weeks ago. Turned out it was a skit uh, performed by two comedians and actresses, actors or whatever. It was really well done. I was fooled that I didn't know it was a skit, but here's the thing. I don't care if it was a skit. Because the issue that it, it focused on is not discussed enough. So I don't care. I would have pulled it as a, mo a movie clip or if somebody recorded it off their phone and it was a real life event. I don't care. The point is, what is it addressing? And in that skit, you had a man who found out that his three-year-old daughter wasn't his and presented papers showing to his wife, I guess, that the child wasn't his. And from there, having her leave his house. Right. And so. You know, I, I posited that piece because he didn't get physical. He didn't get angry. He asked her to leave. He gave her a certain amount of time to do so. And I was saying to brothers, this is an alternative way to getting upset because even our anger can be used against us, right? A false accusation of abuse can be used against you and, and you have very little recourse. So handling it with a cool head, handling it strategically, important. But the biggest issue was that he was able to find that the child was not his based on DNA testing. And I'm, I'm highly supportive of the idea that black men be able to actually do that. But more than that, men in general, that it be mandatory at birth, that the, the, the testing be done. So that before men sign a birth certificate, they can leave them on the hook for child support, even if the child is not biologically theirs, 
that be prevented and stemmed, right? Because if you're talking about a population of black men who make 51 cents on every dollar a white male makes, while black women make 63 cents, white women make approximately 75 cents, you can see how much sense it doesn't make for black men in particular to be on the hook to pay for children that are not theirs, especially when that dynamic is produced out of manipulation and deception, right? So black men are really not in a position to be able to endure that. Um, Chief Rocker, appreciate that support. Uh, Lone Re Revolver, appreciate it. Uh, we're not in a position to endure that. We're dealing with way too much. Counselor Murray, appreciate that. Uh, so mandatory DNA testing is something I think should be on the black male agenda. Uh, family court reform, again, going back to the very idea of signing the birth certificate. Uh, if you're signing it, uh, even though you've been manipulated, should you be able to uh, be able to pull out of that. Or uh, in that regard, the kinds of decisions often made as far as custody, child support, alimony. Now, alimony has been going down over the decades. But nonetheless, one of the things I've noticed is there's this new movement, this back to femininity movement that I'm seeing. And I support that. Um, but what I am noticing is that um, in that movement, you know, the movement to have men work and be the single breadwinners again, I have no problem with that philosophically. My concern, however, is that it, end, it may end up bolstering alimony yet again, especially if the divorce rates don't drop. And as we know, I think it's about 80 percent of divorces are initiated by women. And if you start talking about second and third marriages, the rates of divorce can go up considerably. So, again, men find themselves vulnerable when it comes to family court. A lot of this really began with no fault divorce, and it really put men in a very vulnerable situation that nobody wants to acknowledge except for other men. And it's time that we actually politicize these concerns because they impact you dramatically. So, um, so again, family court reform. Uh, and I think this was something that, you know, many men knew they weren't going to get under Hillary Clinton. So I think you had a number of men that kind of withdrew that. And I would even argue, even though it's not something that I necessarily would do, I would even argue there were men that voted for Trump simply on the basis that they felt that there would be more of a possibility of a men's agenda, or at least if one is presented, it might be more welcome. Whether or not that's true, I can't say. But I can say under Hillary Clinton, it wasn't about to be a consideration. And I can't imagine that, um, you know, you will find the same if something happens to Biden and Harris is, becomes president, too. So, you know, the, the whole question of a men's agenda needs to be one that's put forth more forthrightly. And I think as black men, we need to be very specific about what we think that agenda should be. So make sure that you comment, um, make sure you bring ideas. Let's add to this list. I'm trying to contemplate if I could, if I should make it a Google Doc or something of that nature, but I want men to comment on it and add to it. Okay. Hold on. Let me grab this thing over here. All right. Next up, uh, we have single sex education. And this is something my boy BGS posited. I wanted to give him credit for that. But there's, there's data to suggest that boys tend to do better, um, particularly under male teachers. Girls do better under female teachers. But um, some of the, the, the also research shows that in single sex environments, you find that uh, boys are, are actually able to thrive. So I'm an advocate, advocate for that. Um, I've seen this firsthand with, uh, you know, like uh, certain types of Islamic schools that tend to do well. I'm a father of a 15-year-old. If that were an option available to me, I probably would have done that with my son. Uh, but nonetheless, at this point, whatever increases Black males' capacity for success, I'm with it. 
And I think that's one that needs to be on the agenda. Great Britain, appreciate the support. Um, homelessness. I think we need to have a very targeted program to address black male homelessness. Some of the data in the last decade has shown that in, in cities where you have uh, you know black, black homelessness, it tends to be in some respects over 80 and 90% male in terms of black homelessness. So I'm not saying that 80% of the homeless are black males. And what we do know is before the pandemic, about half of the country's homeless were black. But what I am saying is the data in the last decade in many instances showed that amongst the homeless, amongst the black homeless, 80 to 90 percent, depending on the city of that black homeless population were male. And much of that is is emboldened by incarceration. So many in many instances, these men get out of prison and have nowhere to go. And, in, and if you look at places like L.A., that has contributed greatly to many of the tent cities that we see. A lot of it being comprised of black men getting out of prison with nowhere to go. Um, next up, we have employment. Again, a targeted program for black male employment. Why do I say this? Some of the data again shows us that in 30 major cities, uh, black males were unemployed up to 40 and 50% before the pandemic. What does that mean when after March, you had black America losing half of its employment? But black men in 30 major cities were already 40 to 50 percent unemployed. Right? What is that saying about black male life, black male employment? So we actually have to talk about a targeted black male agenda that specifically and unapologetically deals with issues of employment and homelessness. Right. And not the mealy mouth, timid way that we saw it kind of happening under Obama with um, the Brothers Keeper program, but a full throated, unapologetic program. Right. I talked about in the last episode um, that there is a, a bill, I think it's in Florida, that was put forward to deal with the issues of boys. Uh, I'm still waiting to hear more about it. Um, and uh, I don't know what stage it's in. I think it's just been kind of put on the table. Uh, but again, I think it's still a far cry from a very targeted and purposeful program that's dedicated to examining black boys. Uh, criminal sentencing reform and uh, 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 program or policy uh, that's directly stemmed at uh, deterring incarceration. Now, why do I point that out? Well, it's not just about black males going to jail. It's the kind of sentences they get. And the differences in sentencing for the same crimes between black males and white males, black males and black females, white females, most most apparently, uh, we can see that data. Because white women are actually incarcerated to the degree that should be normal in a given society. But uh, that's not often the case, uh, most particularly for black males. Nicole, appreciate that support. Um, so uh, in, in terms of criminal sentencing reform, basically pushing that black males not be given sentences that exceed any other group who are who are who are um, sentenced for the same crimes. Right? We should actually have to have a dedicated program for that. Uh, and then last but not least on this list, an intimate partner violence uh, uh, policy reform. And that being that we actually take seriously the experiences of men like Mr. Copeland, I pointed out earlier, whose girlfriend killed him. And there have been other cases like that I've reported on in the last few months. Right. A woman who shot her, 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 I think it was her husband for not wanting to argue with her. Another woman who shot hers because he walked in and caught her cheating. And instead of doing anything physical, he didn't threaten anybody. He started to leave. She shot him for leaving. Right. These kinds of cases happen. And, they, and, and this is not new. They've been happening. 
But because the narrative on intimate partner violence has always been situated solely in terms of women's experiences with, with it, we don't have a frame of reference for men's experiences with it. And men's experiences with it can be just as detrimental, if not more. Right. So we know that when you actually ask the question from a male standpoint, you get a different series of uh, the data produces different information. So if you were to talk about intimate partner violence, you're going to talk about rape and sexual assault. Men's experiences differ from women's. But as long as the vocabulary is only geared for women's experiences, it produces this view that it only applies to women and women are the only victims of it. No, we actually have to increase the vocabulary. So when you talk about rape and sexual assault, there had to be a new category created for men, made to penetrate, right? That's obviously, now it does apply to women. It does apply to lesbians. And, and they, the way they began to translate it was inserting a foreign object as opposed to just strictly being a penis. Uh, but the idea overwhelmingly applied to males. But prior to Made to Penetrate, there really wasn't a vocabulary. Therefore, there wasn't a serious study about men's experiences with rape and sexual assault in terms of being victims, because, again, there was no vocabulary. So as I say often on the show, believing is not seeing. I mean, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. So it's not until you develop the vocabulary that you actually begin to see the kinds of behaviors that are going on that impact men and boys. And then we can actually begin to develop a response to it. So these are just a few. Um, I wasn't able to keep up with the comments as much as I would like to. I apologize. It's not personal. I was just trying to get through some of the data I wanted to put on the table. And I'm going to go through the comments a little bit later, especially for those of you that have ideas about what to add to this list. But I'm saying this because as we approach yet another election year, um, you know, it's possible that none of these will ever come to pass. I can't say, but I can say if you don't even have the articulate, if you haven't even articulated it, it damn sure can't. And if we're going to demand that it become part of the discourse, if people want our votes, we need to be able to first demand what it is we want. Now, these are just some ideas that I'm putting forth. I'm not saying they're right. I'm not saying there aren't better ideas. I'm not saying that that uh, that this list shouldn't be longer. I'm merely trying to start the conversation by saying these are a few things that I think are important enough for us to discuss and consider seriously, because as the father of a son, as a black man who was, of course, at one point a black boy, I know how little support I had at key moments that I watched others have. I know when I've sat through presidential bids all the way from Jimmy Carter through Donald Trump, I didn't see a black male agenda. I didn't see anybody levy one. I didn't see any group, any demographic outside of black males actually push forth any significant policy that benefited black males. The only time I heard black males mentioned is when it was something to our detriment. And so at the very least, I want us to at least engage in some reflection about what it is we can do, how we can go about it, and, and what the bullet points of that agenda need to be in order for us to be able to frame this differently and put our concerns on the table, right? That's one of the things I'm definitely, I'm knowing I'm going to hear as this presidential election continues to go forward and we start to hear more about how, you know, you know Biden and Harris need to be the new answer. Well, if they're going to be the new answer, answer me these questions. What are you going to do about black males? And, and, and I want black men most especially to be able to articulate a list of concerns and issues 
right? I want us to be very clear cut. I want us to be razor sharp on what our interests are, because here's the thing. Nothing I mentioned on this list for a black male agenda has have I ever heard put forth on the quote unquote black agenda. Right. I talk often about this notion of flat blackness where, you know, when it comes to black male vulnerability, those issues just become black issues. And the only time we get particular about gender is when it applies to women and girls. But when we try to get particular about black boys and men, we're called misandry. I mean, uh, misogynists. We're called. It's said that we're 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 being divisive. But 50 years of black feminism hasn't been divisive. But black males pushing for black masculinist idea about their own experiences somehow is divisive. Right. So all of these things are on the table as it impacts black men. Thank you, grown man business for the support. Uh, But nobody wants to talk about how it impacts um, black uh, black men in a way that that should be perceived differently. So about to close out today. So, um, you know, if you haven't, please contribute to the show. Um, Those of you, you know, my deal. I'm putting it up for you to see it. You know how I like to close out the show. I'm here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, brainless henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, warriors, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you and remember. Your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.